Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon, tennis fans. Welcome to the Yellow Ball Network. This is where you'll find your tennis news, and this is your host, Coach Denise, exploring tennis blessings and its effects on life's journey. Tennis is a wonderful sport, which could be the vehicle that takes you through life's journey. And our mentors, well, they might provide that roadmap for your journey. On most Thursdays, I am blessed to be talking with mentors who have paved the pathway for many tennis players and coaches. Normally on the first Thursday of the month, it's Alan Fox. The second Thursday, it's Chuck Reese. The third Thursday, if we're not in the National Football League uh, time, uh, it could be Dr. John Murray if he's not too tied up with uh, that there. Uh, and on that uh, fourth and fifth Thursday, well, we have as regulars Coach Scott Williams, uh, Energy Coach Linda LeClaire, Dr. Bryce Young. Uh, we've been uh, blessed to have Ashley uh, Hobson on quite a few uh, times, Coach Scott Inge. Uh, over the last almost four years now, we've been blessed to have many coaches like Nick Saviano and co- other uh, coaches and college coaches and high school coaches, USTA officials, uh, the PTR and USPTA executive directors, and we've even had um, on a couple of occasions the Florida Tennis Magazine founder and editor Jim Marks on the broadcast. Of course, the nice thing about Block Talk Radio and the Yellow Ball Network is that you can listen at any time you choose to this broadcast or any of the other broadcasts on the Yellow Ball Network. For instance, on Wednesday, we have Coach Chuck Reese, American Tennis Program. On Sunday, uh, we have uh, the Coaches Corner with uh, Coach Randy Blumendale uh, on. And uh, all this here is uh, thankful because of J.P. Weber. And I'd like to thank the Yellow Ball CEO, J.P. Weber, for hosting our network. And quite frankly, if you're not following We Coach Tennis on Facebook, well, you're missing out on some useful information. Because I do believe Dr. King, when he said, our lives begin to end the day we become silent about things that matter, Each Thursday, I will add my personal views on North American tennis, and naturally, you will hear my biased views that the tennis journey should be going through our high schools and colleges. Yes, I do have biased views. I'm not a politician or an FBI agent. I'm just an old tennis coach. Uh, And who knows? Together, we may wake up that sleeping giant called high school tennis. Besides our weekly conversation, the almighty willing, you will be able to continue reading my articles in Florida Tennis Magazine. And as I have previously expressed, if you disagree, please email me at coachdenise.fhstca at att.net. Who knows? You may read your views in Florida Tennis or hear them on Coach Denise sharing tennis blessings. It would not be the first time... uh, that has happened. Um, remember, if someone has taken the last issue of Florida Tennis Magazine from your pro shop, 
you can always see the last issue by uh, the, the last issue of the magazine by going to www.floridatennismagazine.com. And of course, in between issues, you can usually find Jim Mart's articles and uh, mine uh, and other information on our Facebook uh, site at uh, FL Tennis. Matter of fact, uh, this month, uh, those of you, I, I think I've answered most of the phone calls and emails. Uh, we do apologize. Uh, my article on uh, uh, college uh, scholarships and where have all the uh, American players gone to was not in this issue. There was a mix-up. Uh, they put my, uh, they repeated my part three of uh, my last uh, article there. No, the article wasn't that great that it should have been repeated. It was just a mistake. But we will uh, have uh, the two-part article on uh, college uh, tennis and uh, who's the, who are the people that we should look to and possibly who's to blame. It's not always just a college coach. Uh, but if we work at it, who knows? We might have uh, more uh, American uh, tennis players uh, in college tennis again. But we do apologize that. For that, but uh, Jim Marks did uh, put the uh, next coming article in the next issue of Florida Tennis. It's on my article is on the uh, Facebook page now. I do see our mentor on the line. I believe Alan, are you there? I'm here. Listening. Uh, how do you feel, you, John? I'm feeling feeling fine, fine, ready ready to rock and roll here today. Very good. Well, as you know, we do my commentary first, so let me get into that because uh, I thought we would discuss a lot of, uh, well, not a lot, but I did have a couple of questions from your book and from the PTR article, um, uh, and I would bring up, but let me give you the commentary first. uh, we haven't always agreed on anything, and I think, uh, <laughs> frankly, uh, the um, All England Club uh, came up with a pretty good compromise that I feel good about. So let me uh, start with that first. Those of you who've been reading my articles in Florida Tennis Magazine understand that challenges understand the challenges of our governing organization. And my view, of course, is. Well, you've seen it, and repeating again, change is risky and necessary. Uh, like I said, it was, wasn't that great an article, but there was a mix-up that put the wrong article in again. Uh, but much of, our, of the foundation of our uh, country and our Constitution came from our forefathers choosing reason rather than accident and force. And, of course, those thoughts originally came from England. And I thought it was pretty interesting that now, when England and the United States are struggling to maintain the dignity of parliaments and Congress, uh, that the All-England Club would introduce a rule change for the 2019 Grand Slam Tournament. Next year, Wilmington Grass Court Championship will be the second Grand Slam Tournament to use the controversial final set tiebreaker system 
that the U.S. Open adapted in 1970. But unlike our 6-6, you know, that 6 in the final set tiebreaker, they're going to wait to the 12-12. Of course, back then, it was a time that some thought that tennis must be into a TV time slot to make the game grow. And many other people, in my opinion, mistakenly thought that making things easier would make them better. Controversial 6-6 tiebreaker was adopted for the final set. And for almost 50 years, tennis organizations have heard some of us argue that the passion of TV viewing should not be the sole reason for making rule change. Yet, most of us agree that reason needs to make its way into rule change through deliberation and examination of facts. Change is risky, and like many other coaches, I do not believe the rule change in 1970 was necessary. I do thank the All England Club for setting an example that good rules should examine the considerations of the mixed views of all, but most importantly, not react to the speedy impulse and passion of a few. But when we react to change, it's needed and it's necessary. And I do think the final set playing of the tiebreaker at 12-12 was a reasonable compromise. I also suspect that the Australian Open and French Open will soon adopt the final set tiebreaker rule. That is, when the final set score reaches 12-12, and because of that decision, I think was a great compromise. It respected the time-tested tradition of the game. Many coaches thinking that the players needed extensive playing time to produce championships, And it also addresses the marketers' concern for growing the game of tennis. So I say thank you, Wilmington, for reminding us that competition, deliberation, and debate are the foundation of our countries and our sports. And that a tiebreaker at 12-12 in the final set, in my opinion, is a good compromise. I do pray that our other tennis organizations follow your example and open the conversation for debate to all its members. Remember that the law also limits, has limits on those who enforce them. So let's remember that we, we need to remember that reason makes its way into rules through deliberation. That's my viewpoint. Um, am I way off base, Coach? Well, uh, you were you were speaking logic. I, I couldn't uh, disagree with that. I I don't totally agree with some of uh, your conclusions as to when uh, tiebreakers should occur and and uh, you know how long these matches should be. I mean. Uh, I give you just sort of a contrary opinion. There's okay. there's two there's a couple of aspects uh, to be considered. One aspect, of course, is is television, which is one of the reasons they came up with tiebreakers in the first place, uh, mm-hmm. just so they could control the length of these matches. Uh, the second 
is fairness to the players. In other words, what are we trying to accomplish uh, with these, uh, with the breakers or non-breakers? And I, I have no uh, question that in an individual match, uh, three out of five sets and, and no tie break probably be the best, uh, the best test of tennis. But, but there are other elements to be considered. For instance, uh, in some of these very long matches, we've seen it happen at Wimbledon, and, and I think we all knew it was going to change based on you know, some of the uh, excessively long matches and then the unfairness of that player having to play uh, an additional match or an additional couple of matches when he's been beaten up in a particularly long match. Example would be Anderson at Wimbledon this year played a very long match with Federer, a five-setter. I think he was down two sets. Uh, And then he played a long match with Isner. And then, so he had these two gargantuan long matches uh, leading up to the final. And then he plays Djokovic in the final. I think it was Djokovic. Yeah. Uh, And... and, Djokovic basically had easier matches going into the final. He did, I think he I don't think he had any extended matches. So you've got one guy with a long long uh beaten up route to the final and the other guy's fresh. That doesn't seem like a reasonable final anymore. Now one guy is heavily disadvantaged. So uh, the yeah, in one match, if you were just playing one match without any uh, previous uh, beatings, uh, then fine, the longer the better if you want a good test of tennis. Uh, but but you have these other elements. I mean, why is it fair for one guy to, to you know, put in eight, eight to ten hours of tennis you know, the previous two matches and the other guy to put in three hours and then match them off against each other. Uh, so so I, I don't particularly like the 12-game uh, tiebreaker. I think it should be shorter. Uh, not Maybe it would be okay for the final, okay, for one match. But leading up to the final, you you would essentially want the two players that reached the final to have basically the same chance of winning it. Now, one to not be unfairly disadvantaged. Uh, and, and, and I just want to do one analogy of this, just to sort of keep in mind of these issues. And that is, and this is slightly off what I just said, but, but I, I look at boxing. Now, originally the best way to see who the, the best fighter was, was to let the two boxers just fight until one of them couldn't come out of the corner anymore, until one was, was unable to continue. I mean, that would be the fairest measure of who was the best fighter. But, I mean, then they found out that they had these, these boxing matches that went on for 50 rounds. So they cut it down to 15 for the championship just because the other was unreasonable. Uh, Sure, tennis 
would be best if you could play gigantically long matches, if it was just a one-match contest. But you got a whole tournament to be considered. And so uh, these extensive matches, you know, uh, make for unfairness. I mean, the ultimate unfairness was when Isner uh, played Mahout uh, some years ago. They, you know, played gargantuan long match into the 70s. I forget what the final set was. But, I mean, Isner was finished after that match. Couldn't play anymore. So, yeah, it was a great contest between those two if there wasn't a tournament to be considered. But when when one guy gets beaten up, then he can't yeah, – he's, he, he's unfairly uh, punished for that. So that's the consideration. I mean, when we're logicking through how the rules should be, consideration of fairness to the players as well as uh, – the, the the public that has to sit through these long matches. Well, I do think that the All England Club did take that in consideration. I think they they examined everybody's view, and that's the thing I re- respect because I th- and I do believe back in 1970 uh, the rackets were different, the play was different. There was only one need at that time, and that was the fit. Uh, the game into the TV, and that's a legitimate uh, uh, thinking. I'm not. Uh, I'm not saying we shouldn't think of that. There. But as coaches trying to develop people, and you went through this at all levels at account. You know, you built Pepperdine uh, uh, tennis into what it is uh, today. When it when you went there, it wasn't uh, what we know as Pepperdine uh, college tennis. But I think that it's, you know, tradition is important and you have to examine that. And, I, and I'm not sure which one of your books I saw it in, but you made an example. It might have been in uh, Think to Win. I'm not sure which one now. But you talked about life was in fairness, and you were talking more about business than you were uh, a tennis match. So you have to be prepared for, you know, everything. And it's controlling what is coming up when you don't know. And I think as coaches, that's what we do. I mean, we look back. Why do we study history? Is it because uh, that should kind of repeat itself? Not necessarily, but how do we sit there and make judgments of what we want to do tomorrow? We examine what happened and what was successful and what failed before. And I just thought it was interesting at today's time when – you know, our Congress, uh, it, 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 the Parliament still debates back and forth. Debating has become a dirty word, like competitions become a dirty word. And I think they're just both useful part of society. And uh, it just seemed ironic to me that what a time for England to come in and make another, you know, step in our direction. So I think we'll see which one of us is right. It is... Uh, uh, Australia and the French go to a 6-6 or do they go to a 12-12 I suspect it won't be a 6-6 though but time will tell that's the great thing about time well it, it will tell uh, you know whether it's going to be 6-6 or 12-12 it won't tell you whether it's uh, the best system or the fairest system 
because you'll only have the one system. Now, in order to really test things, you have to match match one thing up against another, and so we're not going to do that. But uh, one, you know, a comment on history. You mentioned. I mean, the reason that people should study history and why it's useful is that human nature hasn't changed. And so when you right. put people in particular situations, you can see what happens. You know, human nature uh, genetically is the same as it always was. So you, you, you kind of know what's going to happen if you, if you put a human being in the same situation he was in once before. That's the, the use of history, or one of the uses of it, I should say. Um, yeah, and, and, and going back to England and going back to uh, uh, tradition versus uh, changing things or changing the rules, uh, England's an interesting one because we did get a lot of our rules from, we just moved them over from England. And, and I'm changing the topic on you slightly, John, although. That's might, all right. Uh, and and that is uh, college tennis and eligibility and amateur rules, because all of that stuff came from England. I mean, the way mm-hmm. England looked at things at the turn of the century, the turn of the last century, was that that uh, sports were for gentlemen, whatever that meant, uh, for not for like working men, and and making money off of sport was. Uh, and turned the sportsman into a non-gentleman, you know, and so they resisted it. And and so during my day, uh, this was in the 50s and 60s, uh, tennis was an amateur sport. Uh, Wimbledon and all these tournaments were amateur because of English tradition. Uh, they They didn't want athletes to make any money. <laughs> and then, and then of course, uh, they, they started paying everybody under the table uh, to keep them amateur. It was sort of a farcical situation, but it 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 worked its way into college tennis, and and that was an objection I always had as a coach was why would it make you ineligible to play college sport uh, if you had played uh, and taken money as a professional? I mean. When I was at UCLA, if you were if you had given lessons on the side to make a few dollars, uh, and they found out about it, you would be declared professional and ineligible to play college tennis. And and I don't see why what money has to do with it. Uh, for instance, I understand colleges setting up rules where they don't pay the players, because then it would become a bidding war for players and then the richest college would get the the best players and it would be too expensive for the colleges i understand that i just don't understand what the purpose is of not uh, uh, allowing professionals to play college tennis for instance when i was coaching pepperdine i mean if john mcenroe decided he wanted to play college tennis boy i'd love him in college tennis I mean, what would be the negative? I mean, if he wants to go back to school and play for nothing, 
play for college where he's not going to get paid, more power to him. I don't see why the colleges object to that. Uh, and, and I see a lot of um, unnecessary pain, uh, and I've seen it many times with players who at 18 uh, go pro, and then they can't play college tennis, even though they don't make it as a pro. That, that, that makes no sense to me. Uh, it's just sort of a, uh, what should I say, a carryover of tradition that no longer makes sense. It didn't really make sense at the time, <laughs> as a matter of fact. I mean, why England came up with this uh, only gentlemen should play sport and the pros are somehow not gentlemen, and so we've got to keep them out of our sport. And that, that was a silly rule to begin with. <laughs> I don't know what. Well, I think anyway, we, we have them. And, and to credit to it, the NCAA and in, uh, in, in college, I shouldn't say the NCAA, but in all colleges, you know, you you can make now up to $10,000 and, uh, you know, and, and you're still considered an amateur. I I think the question it should go even more. Why not in high school? Why not if somebody well, playing why do they care? Trying to get ITF points? Why why should uh, they not be allowed to play high school? I mean, Lindsay Davenport uh, it, it was an amateur, and she gave uh, you know when she went to England at Wilmington, she got reimbursed for some of her expenses. Uh, because of that, that was, you know, so we have made changes, and I think that's a good thing about history. You examine it like you just did, and you say, well, wait a minute, this is crazy. And uh, and that's why we need people like you that gone through the transition to, to bring these things up. I see in high school, and I asked uh, a couple of years ago, well, why should should we consider high school kids being allowed to play money? Oh, my God, what are you talking about, Coach? I'm talking yeah, about why not? In high school. Well, that doesn't make them leave high school. I mean, uh, but in any case, you know, I, I don't really see how, how taking money has anything to do with anything other than who pays it. I mean, uh, right. I, I, agree. I don't see why they're, why they're tainted. Uh, an example, I mean, if, if some famous singer went uh, went back to college, a professional, you know, some, I don't know, uh, so, some, some great musician goes to college, uh, and this musician had made money, uh, uh, you know, uh, as a great musician. Why would the college not want them to be in, like, college plays or college production or be in the theater arts department? I mean, did it taint them to make some money? to make money with their talent. I, I, I don't see why uh, the same wouldn't hold for athletes. I mean, who cares whether they made money or they didn't make money? I mean, as long as you don't have to pay it, I, I, I don't see what the problem is. Well, I couldn't agree with you more. And I, I mean, I, I take it even further than, than that. I mean, who, if I'm just sitting there and looking to go in business and I have uh, uh, and I want to read, uh, you know, think to win, uh, I shouldn't be allowed to do that to make myself better. 
but yet we tell athletes, I mean, we've got uh, players that are not in the Hall of Fame uh, that because they might have uh, used a drug uh, to enhance their body, I mean, if I, uh, quite frankly, uh, if I could sit there and get something for my knees and shoulder to make me better, I'd be doing it right now. So, uh, it just, uh, you know, we do get carried away with rules, and that's why I say we've got to sit there and think about rules. We can't rush into them. And those people making the rules have to remember that there's the, the reason we have laws is it puts limitations on them, too, so they don't abuse the system. And their system was abused. I agree with you 100%. Yeah, I mean, um Here's one for you, John, about drugs. Now, uh-huh. performance-enhancing drugs, no question, uh, should be outlawed uh, because it gives a player an advantage if they take them, and, and then other players would be forced uh, to try them as well if they wanted to compete. So, granted. But I don't see – and, of course, this is opens up a big political discussion – but – uh, if a player uses recreational drugs, okay, now that's not a good idea because it's not good for you. But right. uh, but if it doesn't help them uh, in 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 their sport, I, I don't see why the sport why it's the business of the sport. I mean, we have drug laws in the country. Uh, dr- certain drugs are illegal, and and so that that takes care of it. I, I, I was thinking along the lines of Martina Hingis, who mm-hmm. uh, she she got tested, and I think she, she took some recreational drug. I forget whether it was cocaine or just marijuana or what. Uh, and basically, they gave her the death sentence from that. They wouldn't let her play anymore for a couple of years, I think. Uh, now, if it doesn't give her an advantage, she shouldn't do it. But but why would they ban her from uh, playing tennis? I mean, what was the the purpose of that? To, uh, to spank her? In other words, if she's caught using cocaine, uh, she can be arrested. Okay, they'll take care of it. But why why the sport? In other words, why why is the sport drug testing people for for instance for recreational drugs? Uh, well, I think it, your it, argument on the drugs was when the Olympics and everything was an amateur sport. But now we send professional tennis players to the Olympics. We send professional basketball players to the Olympics. If you're not an amateur, then quite frankly, whatever you could do to make yourself better, if somebody can afford to hire you, then they would would they perform better than some other person that couldn't? Probably. People, Probably. I uh, you know, I've got two boys, two grandsons playing uh, college baseball. I've seen kids that when they were first started that quite frankly looked equal, but they couldn't afford the investment that my daughter and her husband made all those years for them. So I mean, I I have a problem, and in a former life. I was recognized internationally for my fight against drugs, uh, but I, I have a problem saying that Barry Bonds, for instance, and we haven't proven that he took the drugs, but might have taken it. 
So, therefore, we're not going to let him in the Hall of Fame. And he's hit more home runs than anybody else, a great athlete. Uh, explain that to me. Well, if, he, if he's cheated to do it, then, then his, his results are tainted. Uh, I think we need to make a, a very clear distinction between uh, performance-enhancing drugs that, that are bad for you, that, that hurts you, like steroids, Okay, that's a drug that should be banned and other athletes should not uh, be under pressure to hurt their bodies uh, and and use them just so they can compete. Now, if you're talking about uh, uh, things like like uh, multivitamins or something that helps your body uh, and anyone has access to it, that's a different story. Uh, I see a big difference between using steroids which are, are harmful to everybody pretty much uh, when, when abused and, and say a sports psychologist or something else. I mean, it's the, it, it's the um, dangerous performance enhancing drugs that, that we should look at carefully. The other ones I, 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 I'm not so interested in. Well, now, interesting. we could have a long discussion, by the way, on just uh, the whole drug, uh, the whole drug business, the recreational drug, uh, and and it's uh, what it's doing to the country. Uh, yeah, in my own, no, I agree. It, I agree with that. It, here's an opinion shot for you, John, which you you may disagree with. And that is, I don't see what the government's argument is for making recreational drugs illegal, okay? Uh, Yes, they're bad for you. Yes, we should have uh, treatment uh, for, for people that are hooked. And yes, we should have educational programs. But to me... If a person does things, I mean, the only argument I can really see that the government has for making uh, recreational drugs illegal is that they're not good for you. Now, if that's their argument, uh, I don't buy it because people do things that aren't good for them all the time if they want to for their pleasure. I mean, people go hang gliding. I mean, that's a dangerous sport. You could get hurt. The government it could very well say, well, that's too dangerous, and we don't want to take care of your medical bills if you crash, so it's illegal to go hang gliding. It's illegal to go scuba diving, also potentially bad for you. It's illegal to ha- eat McDonald's hamburgers. They're bad for you, you know, as, as is cake and cookies and, and other things that are bad for you that could end up, you know, making you fat or killing you or whatever. Uh, I mean, the person has a certain responsibility uh, to take care of themselves on things that are bad for them. And, and when the government starts telling you you can't do something because it's bad for you, I start objecting. I, I, I think the government should protect me from you. They should stop you from doing things that hurt me. But if, if I want to do something that hurts me and nobody else... Why, why would the government be involved? Why, 
why is it to their interest to make it illegal? I mean, nice. Well, I think that's an excellent point, and I would just take it one step lower, and that is that all our, our tennis organizations, or baseball organizations, or golf organizations are all governments. So again, I think you're indirectly supporting my argument. But that's let me just put one question that I had a PTR uh, pro uh, ask me about, and he thought I should have spent more time, so I'm going to ask it. He read your uh, article in uh, the uh, PTR magazine, uh, Tennis Pro, and in uh-huh. it you had talked about, uh, you know, when you were, went to college uh, coaching, that, you know, your thinking of how the coach had changed and you realize that instead of running practices uh, and coaching uh, and matches, it turned out to be more of an exercise in controlling emotions, uh, and that's where the teaching techniques and everything are developed all because of the emotions. Uh, And he said we didn't talk enough about that. Would you like to just expand on that? Yeah, I was surprised. When I when I first started coaching Pepperdine, I I was uh, off the tour maybe five or six years, but but I was only a medium athlete. But I got to a relatively high level because I was very uh, shrewd about uh, technique and how to practice and how to how to master certain skills and so forth. So I thought that's what I was going to do as a coach. I would go in and show the players you know, how to do it and how to improve their games. And that would be my function. I just watch them, make sure they do it. Uh, I found out when I started coaching that it was 90% emotional control that I was dealing with as opposed to teaching people how to play tennis. Uh, Tennis, by its nature, of course, is is an emotional game. Uh, It brings out more emotion than, say, a soccer game does. Uh, because of the personal one-on-one aspect of it and the fact that it takes a long time and you've got to be under good control all the time. And if you get emotional, uh, your game drops off. And so part of the game is learning the skills. And then the other part is learning to control the emotion in a match and in practice, actually, Uh, because emotions... Most of them in tennis are negative. Most of them will hurt you as a player. So, uh, and, and, and the second thought is that it's very natural to get emotional in a tennis match. I mean, that's, that's how our nervous system is wired. When, when we don't get what we want, we tend to get angry. When things are going against us, it's natural to get discouraged. That's nature in action. And, and what you have to do if you want to be successful in tennis, or probably any other sport, uh, is you have to control emotions and not allow them to happen. You can't allow yourself to get angry when you're missing. And you can't allow yourself to get discouraged when things are going against you. Because if you do, you're going to lose for sure. And uh, so emotional control uh, becomes a very important factor in becoming, you know, a a good tennis player or an effective one. Uh, And, and of course, I wrote a book on 
business and other areas of achievement. Uh, and emotional control is important in all of them. You know, emotions. Uh, and and here's here's a, something that I'm, I'm not sure people are totally aware of, but the emotional system. Uh, reacts more quickly than the logic system. The two are very different systems. They affect each other, but they're not directly related. And so when you, when you miss a ball on an important point, the emotions will flare much more quickly than your logic system can react. Okay? You'll miss, you'll immediately get angry, and, and then you may realize what you've done uh, and try to counter it. But it's often too late at that point. And so to control emotion, you have to make your decision before you get emotional. You know, uh, you, you have to decide how you're going to handle situations and how you're going to control the emotion before you get emotional. Because once you do get emotional, uh, it's very hard to change it. And, and the logic system gets very uh, inaccurate. You know, it gets, it, 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 you know, an example would be the guy gets, or the girl gets a bad call. Okay. That will tend to cause a great deal of emotion. Okay. Uh, Not just the loss of the point, but the fact that you've been cheated. Okay. It feels like a moral issue and, and it looms very large and tends to make people very angry. And so they will, uh, I've seen people tank matches after they get a couple of bad calls on the basis, they say, well, uh, if a cheater wants it that badly, let him have it. I'm not even going to try against this person. Makes no sense. <laughs> you know, that's what the cheater wants. They want you to quit. <laughs> so, so you don't do that. But, but if, if you don't watch it, your logic system will be tainted by uh, your emotional system which basically is, is very, very angry, somewhat, uh, what should I say, insecure, which most people are. Uh, and so the, the insecurity and the anger together make you very irrational. You're liable to come up with any decision. So you've you got to watch it. The emotion is, is, a, is a very powerful uh, part of not just tennis, but in all of our decisions and lives. Yep. Yeah, it makes and sense. an irrational one. Huh? I mean, let me expand on that if I can. Would it, as a coach now, and uh, I'm making assumptions, but I, I have always tried, I always had meetings and everything prior to the start of a team because I felt I had to get to know people. Now, uh, how you control your own emotions, or I should say how I control my emotions, depending upon my perception of what the player needed. Is that, would you recommend that, or was you know, that a wrong approach to take? Well, are we talking as a coach, you know, whether the coach should become emotional or shouldn't? Is that, is that yes. the question? I'm not sure yes. I uh, I think the coach needs to be practical. The coach needs to, needs to uh, keep his, the coach's goals in mind and use emotion uh, that helps them. You know, not, you know uh, sometimes 
it, it, it's useful for the coach to just get angry and lose it at a player uh, and, and scare them straight. You know, that was the old, in the old days, that's kind of how coaching worked pretty much. In other words, the, 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 coach, the coaches back in the old days were dealing just what I was dealing with, and that is young players that get emotional and lose it and maybe uh, don't compete well. And so uh, coaches like the famous Bobby Knight, basketball coach, I mean, he was so scary and, and, and had such a bad temper that the players were more afraid of him than they were of anything else. And so uh, if they missed an easy free throw or something, they didn't dare get mad because if they did, Bobby Knight would come down on them with both feet. And so uh, sometimes the emotion of the coach can be quite useful. Uh, sometimes it isn't. Okay. I mean, sometimes in tennis, it's tougher. Uh, it, although, you know, you, you, our, our, our mutual friend Chuck Creasy was a great college uh-huh. coach. Okay. And he used a lot of Bobby Knight tactics. And, and what he found, I mean, he was very, very good, by the way, at taking uh, sort of mediocre players when they came in to uh, play under him at Clemson and turning them into nationally uh, dangerous uh, competitors. And he did it, you know, with his sort of tough approach. I mean, he was so tough, and he drove them so hard that they had – he was not a great tactician or uh, stroke analyzer back in the day. He's probably gotten pretty darn good at it now. But back in the day, if you put enough pressure on the the player – uh, to straighten up and and whatever I'm not sure exactly how he did it, but he was pretty rough. I mean, the player then has to figure out how to do better or leave. If the player is going to stay, you know, he's going to have to uh, meet Chuck Creasy's standards, uh, uh, or he's going to be in a lot of trouble. So he's got to. The player is sort of forced to figure it out themselves, you know. It, it, and and most players can do that. I mean. If you have to, you can control your emotion. I'm sure Chuck Creasy's guys didn't very often tank matches because they got mad. Because if they right. did, <laughs> you know, they were gonna they're gonna have to get us another head when he got done with it. Uh, so they didn't do that, and it forced them to uh, straighten up. So it it can be useful. It can be. I mean, it has to be natural. I mean, I would not be good at that. That wasn't my style. Uh, it wasn't natural for me just to get angry at them and get rough. You know, mine was more, um, what should I say? It, it was more intellectual. I, I, I tried to teach them, and I did punish players, but not with the severity of a, of a chuck. Uh, I probably might have been a better coach if I did, but, you know, my punishments were you know, relatively mild in comparison. Uh, well, but, I think what you said, though, is so important. It's, it's an individual thing, and I think it has to be you. It's funny, just last night I was on the tennis court with a couple of high school kids, and the mother, and they go there, and I, and I have a belief you turn. I, I have a... 
I, I hate when people don't use the preparation hand or people sit there and say it's your non-dominant hand. And I believe we as tennis pros create most of the problems. If it's your offhand or your non-dominant hand, how important is it? So I would, I had a habit of I would start yelling when I seen it, turn, 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 turn. And I would do that for sometimes a couple minutes till the whole team started doing uh, on eight courts. You would start hearing one chord, then two chords, three chords. When I could hear all eight chords, uh, turn, 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 turn. And I would say, okay, now let's do something else. And last night with a couple of the mothers on the side, and all of a sudden I started saying, I'd go, please, turn. And she goes, turn, 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 turn. But I had a, a girl in high school one time, and she brought a song. And rather than me yelling, they would put it on a loudspeaker, and they would go, the song was turn, turn, turn. And I learned it was a song there. It wasn't written for me. But uh, so everybody has different approaches. And I tell people all the time, the most important thing is you got to be you. You can't be John Denise. You can't be Chuck Reese. You, you, you can't be Alan Fox. You have to be you. you and you've got to learn from these people. You know, read their books, read their literature, go listen to them, learn from what they do, and then find out, you know, what fits your personality. Yeah, the two uh, most successful coaches when I first came into the college game were Dick Gould at Stanford and Glenn Bassett at UCLA. Uh, And they both had won a number of national championships and had great teams, and they had totally opposite approaches and and each of their approaches uh, suited their personality i mean gould who i think everyone would have to admit is the greatest of all time without much question mainly because he won the ncaa's more times than anybody else okay (laughs) and 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 he was not a disciplinarian or a uh, driver didn't uh, you know, get on the players. You know, sometimes they tanked, whatever. He didn't say much. <laughs> he, he, but he had the best people skills of any coach, you know, better than me, better than any of us. Uh, and he could somehow, uh, when uh, the important thing for Gould was the national championship. And somehow he would use his people skills at that stage to get his players ready. But he wouldn't be on them all the time. He, 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 recruit, he was a great recruiter and, and got, of course, the best players in the country because he was so good at it, uh, but then knew how to handle them. He basically made them happy most, all, all, all year. And then when it came down to the national championships, it, you know, he, he somehow got them ready to compete. Uh, Bassett, you know, was a, was a disciplinarian. He was tough. His practices were very tough, uh, very long, very uh, repetitive, which, you know, is the best. I mean, that's what you need to develop habits. And his players were ready, too. But that's how, that's how he did it. He did it differently. I mean, he was the second greatest coach of all time, probably. Uh, but Gould was the best. But, but his method uh, was specific to him. If someone else tried it, you'd have chaos on your hands. 
you know, just mm-hmm. it, it, because uh, there's one cardinal rule of coaching, uh, which I, I could probably call it the golden rule of coaching. You know, the coach's number one task is not to teach the player how to play or any of that. It's to get control of the player, okay, in some way. Somehow the great coaches get control of the players, uh, and that's the number one job of the coach. If you don't have control of the players, it doesn't really matter how smart you are or what you're trying to teach them because they're, they're going to get emotional and they're not going to listen to you. You know, so somehow or another the great coach controls the players, and uh, they do it according to their personality, which Creasy did, and Gould did, and Bassett did. You know, and I did somewhat, although I wouldn't put myself in the same league as a Bassett or a or a Gould. Although we could beat them from time to time, we did beat UCLA and the NCAs a couple of times. But uh, anyway. Well, like you said before, you've said it before, and I agree, the number one job of the coach, a college coach, is recruitment. (laughs) And when you say that, recruitment, it's uh, obviously you're trying to recruit the best talent. But do you recruit somebody, when you recruit somebody that you don't feel there's, you know, you don't like the way they do certain things and it would be too lengthy to change something that you see as a problem or would you still recruit them? Uh, it, it would, it would depend on how serious the problem was. I mean, when I started coaching at Pepperdine, didn't have uh, the reputation of a UCLA or SC or the strongest school. So I, I didn't have the option to take, you know, the number one, two, three, four player in the country and just turn them loose. I, I had to recruit whoever I could recruit. So I, I was not picky, you know, about personality traits uh, uh, or reputation or anything, to be honest. You know, I'm, I'm just being very honest now. Uh, it, yeah. it was, if the guy was nationally ranked, uh, you know, but was a problem guy, I would take him uh, and then work with him. And in general, I, I, I was generally able to deal with those kinds of issues. Most of them. I, I did have some that I couldn't deal with. Like, uh, I had one, one player who was ranked top five in the country but was a problem player, okay? Uh, and and in, in one of the early matches, he was playing number six for us. He was quite good. Uh, and and uh, we were playing against SMU, who was being coached by Dennis Ralston. Okay, who was a great player in his day, and 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 was a Davis Cup coach and everything. He was a class guy, you know. Right. And Dennis came up to me after the match and he said, "Who is this guy, so and so?" He says, "He called me an effing a hole." I said, "What?" <laughs> he called. Dennis Ralston, an effing a-hole. Uh, so, so I, I went to the player. I said, did you, did you do that? To, did you say that to Dennis Ralston? He said, yes, I did. He was sitting there, he says, you know, on the changeovers. He was eyeing me. He says, he says he's trying to psych me out. I said, 
are you are you trying to tell me that Dennis Rolson gave you the evil evil eye, and so you cursed him out? <laughs> so I I had to bench this guy, uh, for uh, for those matches. He did shape up somewhat, but but here here was the end of it. The end of it was after the NCAA championship that year. There was a party, and one of my players. I mean, my players went to it. One of the players came up to me the next day and said, so-and-so, you know, blindsided me and punched me in the side of the head at the party. And, 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 and so I, I went to this same player and said, did you do that? He said, yeah, the guy was dissing me. And so, you know, whatever his excuse was, I said, well, I'm going to actually have to ask you to leave the team. Unfortunately, you know, we just—that's one step too far. I—I <laughs> I, I should well, have known when he when he called Dennis Ralston an effing a-hole <laughs> that, that I was dealing with a level that was beyond <laughs> beyond reasonable, which it turned out to be. But you know, in general, I could work with the this sort of more unstable player. In general, Alan, we've just killed the whole well. We're two minutes short of killing uh, this whole section, and uh, they always go too too by too fast when I'm talking to you. Uh, and, and next week we are going to have uh, Chuck Reese on. Uh, by the way, it's second uh, Thursday, uh, and when some, sometimes these sessions go by too fast. But before we go off the air. Tell the people how to get a hold of you, because uh, heaven knows I'm not the only one that needs you. Well, first I have to uh, comment on one thing, and that is when you said we killed the whole hour. Should I, should I, my feelings be hurt uh, on on that statement? <laughs> we killed. No, the not at all. I wish we had an hour and a half. <laughs> I'm kidding. Uh, I'm kidding. But uh, to get in touch with me. Uh, I have a website. I, I do consulting with players, and I do uh, sell my books, and I do uh, speak at events. Uh, to get in touch with me, uh, you can email me at Alan Fox Fox A L L E N F O X F O X at msn dot com, or you can go to my website, AlanFoxTennis dot com, uh, and you can get to me, or you can. Uh, purchase my various wares uh, on my website, uh, and so I'm 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 happy to work with young players, older players, anyone that's having some sort of uh, issues with the mental part of the game, or physical, actually, for that matter. Well, is that, is that Alan, enough, John? Yes, it's been a pleasure uh, talking with you again. I'm. Uh, Glad that you're back on the mainland, and I look forward to our conversation again uh, next month. I do remind everybody that the great thing about Block Talk Radio is that you can listen anytime uh, you choose. So tell your friends uh, if you enjoyed the uh, broadcast and tell them this is where they can listen to Alan Fox, among other places too, of course. And if you haven't read his books, it's a shame on you. Go out and get them done. I look forward to the almighty willing to talk with you again next week.
And just um, tell your friends that we'll have Chuck Reese on. And uh, I thank Kevin for the mentors uh, every week. Bye now. Hey. Bye-bye, John. Please give my best to Chuck Creasy. I love him. I will. Thank you. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye.